In part two, I'd like to reminisce um, a couple of personal memories I have of Len, if you if you may. So so many people uh, recently have uh, got in touch either via email or simply reading comments on Facebook. And I would absolutely love if we had time to hear from every one of them. And I'm hoping that over the course of the next few weeks, I'll be able to get in touch with various people and really put together a sort of uh, a show of uh, testimonials uh, about the great man himself. But um, my co-presenter, John Leeming, did get in touch and put together a few words on record, which I'd like to share with you now. Gosh, where do I start? Um, Len... He's been around, well, for as long as I can remember anyway. And uh, in a way, I suppose he and his parents gave the theatre organ movement a a bit of a kick up the backside. It had gone a bit into the doldrums perhaps by then. And um, he was able to jump on the new enthusiasm that was coming as a result of the organist entertains in the 1970s. And... A lot of people were inspired by what Len had done at home and, of course, his playing. He was giving concerts from an early age when he was in his 20s. The theatre organ hobby movement was going forward at that time and Len and his parents had a lot to do with it. The ATOS was formed. That was a significant moment for all of us, I think. Back in the 1970s, the London chapter of the American Theatre Organ Society. It helped bring the relations between the USA and British theatre organ uh, societies together and to share some of the experiences and knowledge. And, of course, Lynn Larson was brought over in 1976, I think it was, uh, to great acclaim. And uh, then after the formation of ATOS, we had that magnificent George Wright concert and I think that other societies were inspired as well. They became more enterprising as a result of seeing what was actually possible. And the young organist competitions, of course, that was a, a brainchild of the ATOS, which started here before it did internationally. It's quite a remarkable life in the organ world that Len has uh, brought to all of us. It's It's not just... Len, it's not just his family, it's not just the ATOS. It inspired all of us to to take the organ world a little more seriously, as well as being a fun hobby. Let's not forget his playing, of course. He had a style which was very special and something that a lot of people were inspired by, I'm sure. And his influence is something that I don't think will fade away. People will remember Len, they'll remember his cheery way in which he gave joy at his concerts by his infectious approach to playing the theatre organ. Now, I'm very sorry that Len didn't live long enough to be able to enjoy his own Chorleywood instrument again when it gets its new lease of life at the new venue in Suffolk. I'm sure, though, that that will be a a wonderful and a very fitting memorial to Len, to all the work he's done, the inspiration both to the technical and musical sides of our favourite instrument. If I could see you now, Len, I would salute you, and we owe you a great debt of gratitude. Thank you from all of us. A few words from John Leeming. I remember... The first time going to Woking was the first time I met 
Len Rawl, and there was sort of me and James shuffled in, and uh, he was um, coming out to to welcome people, and um, I remember thinking almost like we were on hallowed ground, and thinking oh, it's Len Rawl, this <laughs> magical figure um, who could produce such wonderful sounds, and at that point I'd only ever heard him on record, and it was a real delight to meet him. And as this program gained popularity, uh, I invited Len to do a couple of recording sessions uh, in this country on the Isle of Man. Um, and I remember at Barriol's house, which um, is home to a very fine Wurlitzer, we were discussing the signature tune of the program, Happy Days Are Here Again. And he said, do you want it played sort of in the normal way? And I said, well, you do what you want with it, Len. And out came this. sultry version of our signature tune um, played like nobody else could um, at Barry O's house uh, another instrument that Len really helped to refine and get the best out of and I know that uh, on the opportunities he had to play there he was delighted to do so more recently with the installation of the stand art at home Len was never short of advice and encouragement and every time I wrote to him to ask about things and uh, he always seemed to know exactly what to say it was never it was never really criticism he always seemed to find a, a positive spin on absolutely everything and would leave you feeling inspired rather than daunted by the task ahead and on the recording sessions I did with him they were really very good fun um, so I picked two tracks um, from those sessions that I did with him. One at Barry Oles, which is the track Fools Rush In. And then straight after that, a, a tune which I always asked Len to play. I'm sure he got fed up with me asking it. Um, but he always did something different with it every time. And it was always so inspiring. And that's Blue Moon. So for that track, we'll go over to the Isle of Man, which is another one of those instruments which Len uh, installed, restored and refined to absolute perfection.
Blue Moon on the Isle of Man. And uh, I very vividly remember um, the time spent on the Isle of Man, such generous time spent um, with Len and Judith, um, not just for the recording session, but we went out for a lovely meal. And uh, the day after those sessions, we went for a lovely drive around the Isle of Man, which I'd, I'd not been to for a number of years, and had so much time um, talking to Len about anything and everything. And uh, I will remember um, the fact that we both got stuck on the Isle of Man um, was uh, pretty impressive. Um, and I remember the next morning coming down for breakfast after being stuck. And uh, who should walk in the door but Len, who um, seemed to be more distraught than I was that I'd been stuck. Um, but I very much remember remember that time. But I think that the time spent with Len that I enjoyed the most, and gosh, I wish I knew what I knew now back then, was the time that uh, I went to his house to record the organ for this programme. It was very early on in this programme's development, and uh, to have such a personality like Len, it was like being on hallowed ground going to that house, having heard it so many times on recordings, and just being... Listening to Len at home um, was just a magical experience and one which I will treasure. So for the end of the second part of this programme, I thought I would resurrect that interview that I did with Len and the tracks that I recorded back in 2014, um, which wasn't all that long before the organ was removed. So here we go with the chat. So we are here with Len Wall in Tonawanda, in his house. So Len, could you tell me about the importance of the organ you have here? Well, the um, four-manual Wurlitzer that was delivered in 1927 to the Empire Leicester Square was at that time the largest Wurlitzer in Europe. It's since been superseded, but um, it, it, it was at that time a bit of a landmark. Uh, and originally it was destined for an American theatre, but uh, the Empire came online a little earlier than expected, and so um, this very fine organ found its way into London's West End and uh, set a sort of new sound um, insofar as it was in a very large building. So mm -hmm. we had what today we call the big American sound, you know, um, right there in the heart of London. Could you tell me if there's anything unique about this particular Wurlitzer? I think the, the uniqueness of it is that it is all original. Um, this, uh, and it's early. The, the voicing did change over the years um, as different voices came along and one or two thoughts on uh, mass producing the pipes came, but um, a great deal of attention was paid to the voicing and regulation of the organ. Um, but uh, since that time it's remained unchanged, so as far as uniqueness here is concerned, I see it as a benchmark by which I judge or assess you know, other instruments. Um, that's not to say it's any better or worse, um, it's just that, um, you know, we can say to anyone, well, you'd like to hear how they voice organs in 1927. Well, come here and if you want to hear a certain sound, yep. this is how it was. And it's been unchanged. And of that, I'm sort of very protective. Mm -hmm. it's, again, it's not that it's the right thing to do. Um, it's just another way of dealing with preservation. Yep. 
Could you tell me about some of the people who have recorded on this organ over the years? Well, I suppose Sandy was one of the first. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, they did some passe pictorial shots of him as well, which are still available. Um, Jesse Crawford, I suppose, um, is the name that most organ enthusiasts will recognise as being of great significance because he brought a whole new style of playing and also presentation. He had a, a very special way of wanting to be presented at the organ. Um, Reginald Fort was also um, there at the opening with Sandy, Sandy McPherson. Um, Sandy was the solo organist and Reginald Fort was the orchestral organist, I believe, and they were both resident for a short period when it, when it opened. Um, Nelson Elms hmm. was another organist there. Um, the list could go on. Well, <laughs> yes, that's just on the spur of the moment. The, the, the list sort of stops there. But um, in the final days, um, we had a concert and Jackie Brown and George Blackmore came and gave us the farewell event there. Um, but uh, I, I have to be honest, I just can't remember all those who have gathered around the console. It was an instrument that um, the organists uh, in, in London seem to gravitate to mm -hmm. late at night. Right. And there are quite a few stories of people, you know, people like Quinton McLean coming over from the Trocadero and, and, and having a jar or two, you know, with, uh, with whoever was playing in the organ. And um, yes, it's, uh, it was well known, but it, it was also somewhat hidden away because being in the West End and being a theatre used for royal premieres mm -hmm. quite often, um, it was not, not a cinema that uh, uh, lay folk tended to think yes. of as readily accessible. You know, it was quite expensive to go mm -hmm. in there. And so organists um, were restricted just to the officials and uh, people who knew where the stage door was, I yes. guess. So could you tell me about how the Wurlitzer came to end up here in your house? Well now, it's quite a long story, so forgive me if I go on about this. That's but, all right. Um, I happened to see uh, that the Empire Theatre was going to close in a short article uh, in the Daily Telegraph mm -hmm. when I was working in the City of London in the insurance world. And ha having... Uh, had an eye for this amazing looking console. Um, as it used to appear every time I had a letter from the secretary of the Theatre Organ Club as his logo. Right. And it was one of those consoles that just looked significantly different to any of the other organs I was experiencing at that time back in the late 50s. And uh, I said to the secretary, you know, uh, I see in the Daily Telegraph that the theatre is going to close. What's happening about the organ? Mm -hmm. And he said, uh, well, he didn't know about it. I said, well, uh, can't we have a meeting at the theatre to say farewell to it? And he said, oh, no, no, you can't possibly get in there. It's such a famous theatre, mm -hmm. etc., etc." 
And I said, well, you know, perhaps I'll have a word with the manager. And he mm -hmm. said, well, do, do what you like, he said, but you know, you won't get anywhere. <laughs> anyway, I just picked up the phone straight away and uh, asked to speak to the manager of the Empire. And um, he was very, very nice, very polite. And he said, um, why don't you come along and have a chat? And I went and met him uh, in the entrance foyer. And um, he was very much, you know, the uh, well-dressed man of the house mm -hmm. um, in full tail regalia. And uh, he seemed to take to me and my enthusiasm for wanting to see the organ preserved rather mm -hmm. than knocked down. And um, he said, well, we have some offers for the organ from an organ builder and from a scrap merchant. Right. Um, but he said, if you'd like to write to me overnight and make me an offer, I'll speak on your behalf to the directors. And within 48 hours, I had a, a positive response from him. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and, um, I mean, my, my offer was very modest, mm -hmm. um, um, but uh, it was all I had in the bank at the time. And uh, the qualification came that um, the organ had to be got out within three weeks, mm -hmm. which frightened the life out of me because at that time I hadn't gone and viewed the extent of the instrument. Yeah. I hadn't seen the huge chambers. I hadn't discovered the blower. I hadn't discovered where the relay system was. Mm -hmm. And it's a very large theatre. And uh, when we did eventually go and have a look at it, it uh, frightened me off um, for a week to think about it. So, so not having sort of touched anything, we spent a week just trying to work out how we would get this organ out and, how, and, and assembling a crew of about 14 um, good friends and true mm -hmm. who would uh, come along and work through the night to dismantle it. So there we are, that's how the, the initial introduction came, just from a news, newspaper uh, mention and uh, considerable help from the management um, who accepted my promise that I would keep it as one instrument yeah. and preserve it for the future. Um, we then, as I say, spent a week thinking and planning and eventually we went in with two weeks to the deadline and started to remove the various component parts in very filthy conditions. I have to tell you, it was really unbearably uh, filthy, uh, up, especially up in the roof where, you know, all those years of London soot had accumulated. Mm. Um, however, we made, we made it by just two hours. Um, the last piece came out with just two hours to spare on, on the time schedule. Had we not made the time schedule, there, we would have been um, duty-bound to pay them uh, £10,000. Right. Because that would have delayed the um, contractors coming in with their swinging ball yes. to start thrashing around inside. Um, so there we are. We made it and stored the organ down at my father's home, um, which already contained uh, a nice little Wurlitzer. Mm -hmm. Um, so the car went out onto the drive and this console went into the garage. Yeah. Um, various pipes went under the beds in the three, three bedrooms. We raised them up on bricks, the beds, and put ever more pipes under the beds. We pulled the wardrobes away from the wall and stacked pipes behind the wardrobes. 
Um, we used the attic to the full to store various parts. Um, a lot of walking up and down stairs, yes, as you can imagine. imagine. Yes. It, was, uh, it was very exciting, very exciting. And my mother was absolutely stunningly cooperative <laughs> and um, shared the enthusiasm and kept us fed and watered as we kept coming and going from the theatre. Friends next door loaned, loaned us lorries to bring some of the big, bigger things. And as I say, we, we made it just by two hours in the end bringing the very last parts uh, home to North Holt, mm -hmm. Middlesex. Um, it was there for a couple of years whilst we tried to find a home in the form of a school hall. We were particularly keen to get into the school, but the climate at that time for getting these instruments in anywhere was just not what it has been in more recent times. Mm -hmm. um, we just couldn't find a suitable place for it. Um, one or two things were offered to me, but I declined mostly on the basis that they were damp buildings yeah. and um, organs just don't like dampness. Um, it was about in the 1960s I met my wife um, when we were taking the organ out of the theatre as it happened and a couple of years later we decided to get married. But um, not being able to afford a house, we decided to try and build our own. Yeah. Uh, which meant circulating various local authorities and trying to find a piece of land. And again, it's a very, very long story, but I was fortunate in a friend happening to say to me, oh, I was driving up Berry Lane in Chorley Wood and I saw a, a piece of wood out the front saying plot 52, uh, why don't you ask the Chorleywood councils? <laughs> um, within a few hours of hearing that, I was on my bicycle, went up to the Chorleywood council offices, spoke to the chief surveyor, and again within 24 hours I put £200 deposit on his desk and um, the, the piece of land was ours. Um, the cost of the land was the amount that I could get as a mortgage from the company I was working for right. at the time. So all our mortgage went in the piece of land. And then subsequently, you know, we drew up the plans to accommodate the organ um, as well as uh, ourselves. And um, although the house wasn't as big as you see it here today, um, it was just sufficient with the organ chamber on one side of the house and the living accommodation on the yeah. other. And uh, we took two years to lay 65,000 bricks and pour concrete on the concrete roof. And um, it was a, a huge undertaking because we were only working on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Midweek we were stacking up the, the bricks and getting the site ready and then working at the weekend laying the bricks and and getting into the general construction. Uh, when we moved into the house, um, our only piece of furniture really was the organ. Right. And a couple of deck chairs, I seem to remember. Uh, the staircase hadn't arrived and we had a, the building ladder that we'd been using on the scaffold um, to go up to bed on. So when we came back from our honeymoon, it was up, up, up to bed with, uh, with the ladder, the builder's ladder, still dripping with bits and pieces of cement on it, I remember. Anyway, um, 
it took a long time to obviously gradually get the house finished and my, my wife Judith was very patient about all that but it was exciting times mm. you know we got our own house you know and we then spent two more years um, building the organ from one end of the organ chamber through yep. to the other um, and uh, subsequently we've extended the house forwards and backwards as we later discovered we could mm -hmm. um, so as to accommodate the three children that we had so we've lived here now for over 50 years uh, the organ in I wouldn't say domestic luxury but at least preserved um, completely intact mm -hmm. and in fact slightly extended as well so the original organ is as it was yeah well thank you very much Len and uh, we're now going to hear Len at his home organ playing to the end of the show. Thank you. 
Len Rawl at home back in 2014 and uh, some recordings made for this programme and they really show off that experience you got sat in the living room listening to the organ. No reverb, no close miking. That was the sound that you experienced. Well, that's it for these two shows. Um, Lens passing does leave a huge hole in the musical world of the cinema organ, and uh, it's a hole that shall never be filled, not by anybody. Um, His constant enthusiasm, even well into his 80s, his willingness to help, um, his enthusiasm, there was always a smile and a lot of comedy. Being around Len was always good fun, whether or not it was uh, musically or otherwise. And uh, everybody on this programme, and indeed I think in the organ world in general, offers their sincere condolences to Judith and the rest of the royal family. I felt it was an honour and a privilege to have known Len, even in uh, the latter part of his life but he still gave me and many other people countless hours of joy and fun. So Len, wherever you are, rest in peace. 